still doing the attributes of God. And today we're looking at goodness and love. Um, we're actually going to be talking about the goodness of God for the next couple of weeks. Uh, because a lot of his other attributes kind of fall under the umbrella of his goodness. They're not synonymous, but they kind of fit together. Um, when you talk about the love of God, you're talking about, in one respect, his goodness. So we're going to start with goodness, and we're, we'll talk about things like grace and mercy and things like that. But today, we'll do goodness and love. Typically, I've been starting these with just giving you a definition. And I'll give you one or two definitions, we'll go from there. I want to start with goodness without a definition. And I want to do um, go back to English class. Synonyms and antonyms. I'm going to get everyone to wake up this morning. Okay, so this is like a group exercise. Okay, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up some words. These are all adjectives, and we're going to decide do these words describe goodness or not? And so you're just going to say yes or no. These are not trick questions. Okay, I'll put them all up and then we'll go through them one at a time. Okay, uh, harshness, loveliness, cruelty, gruffness, loving kindness, mercilessness. Say that ten times real fast. Sweetness, kindness, severity, and generosity. So the question is, do these describe goodness? Some of them do, some of them don't. We'll start with the first one on the top left. Harshness. Yes or no? No. Come on, you guys. No, it does not. If someone is good, if we're going to say something is good, it's not going to be harsh. It's not going to be mean-spirited, you might say, right? What about loveliness? Yes. Loveliness is, is a good adjective to describe something or someone that is good. Cruelty. Can we say that cruelty is an attribute of goodness? No, that doesn't work. Okay, gruffness. Gruffness would be like being extremely abrupt with someone. What do you guys think? I heard some no's. Maybe. Okay. Well, I already put a color on here, so I went with no. <laughs> um, and I, I understand where you're going with that. Um, because there is a place where God is very truthful with you. And he tells you exactly what you need to hear. And, and that comes off as being abrupt, but this is more of a unloving kind of abruptness. Okay, loving kindness. What do you guys think? Yes or no? Is that goodness? Yes. Mercilessness. If I lack mercy and I give no mercy to anyone, is that a trait of goodness? No. Sweetness. Yeah, I, I'm getting a lot from this section, but people in the back. He... Yes, okay. We're going to wake up this morning. Uh, kindness. What do you guys think? Yes or no? Is that goodness? Yes. Severity, no, and generosity, yes. Okay, the reason we went through that little exercise, other than just trying to wake everybody up, is because goodness is really hard to define, but you know what it is. You intuitively understand what we're talking about when we say that God is good. And all of these adjectives in green describe His goodness, the ones in red do not describe God. These are not descriptions of who God is. These are not descriptions of God's goodness. What do these describe? 
bad. They describe, huh? Wrath. Wrath. Okay, yeah. These describe men. These describe the sinful emotions that people experience, that people do. People are cruel. Even in God's judgment, he's not cruel because his judgment is just. Even in his judgment, he is not without mercy. It is a merciful judgment. It is a merciful justice. These are not descriptions of God. These are descriptions of sinful man. Uh, Wilhelmus Brockle, which is a great name, by the way. How unbecoming to have such thoughts about God. Such sinful emotions are found in man. Whenever we talk about God being good, it cannot be describing anything that's in red. No part of God can be described by those adjectives. And when we say that God is good, that's the negative side. We're saying that God is not anything in red. God is described by what's in green. These attributes sum up what it means for God to be good. Brockle again. Goodness is the very essence of God's being. Even if there were no creature to whom this could be manifested. Before God created, God was all of these things. He has always been able to be described as these. And every one of his attributes can be described by each of these adjectives. You can describe God's justice as being sweet. You can describe his mercy as being generous. You can describe his holiness as being kind. His righteousness is lovely. And just picking your attributes, and you can describe each of them with these adjectives. God, in fact, describes himself, he describes his own nature as being goodness. Remember Moses went to him and said, show me your glory? Did God say, I'll show you my glory? Exodus. And he said, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you. God describes his very nature as being goodness. And notice, as we go through this verse, and proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The goodness of God, he connects with his graciousness and his compassion. No cruelty, no harshness, no gruffness. The word he uses here, I think, the, the Old Testament provides a great place to do little short word studies. The word he uses here is tov. And I still didn't fix that slide. That's actually tov. It's another form of tov. The word can describe the best things in a place. The best things in a place. Not the mediocre things. You give someone the best. That's the idea. Um, the same word is used in, ex, uh, excuse me, in Genesis. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the Lord. If you were to read that in a very strict, literal way, it would say, I will give you the good of the land of Egypt. And he's actually referring to the best land 
the land that everybody wants, that's the land he's going to give to the people of Israel. The same word tov can refer to prosperity. Um, Jeremiah says, They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord. God has infinite provision. Abundant resources with which he can provide to his creation. And he uses that provision to supply and to provide everything his creatures need. And so the goodness of God can describe the, the, the bounty or the prosperity of God. It can describe the best things in a place. It can also describe beauty. Um, this next verse I'm going to show you, it, it is describing beauty, but it's in the form of a, a, a proclamation of judgment. Um, he says, Ephraim is, trained, is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. Her fair neck would be like a beautiful neck. Visually appealing, but I'm going to take a yoke and I'm going to place it on her. It's describing beauty. And again, in Exodus 33, this verse we looked at before, you could say that this describes the beauty of God. I'm going to make my beauty pass before you. Goodness can also describe, this word tov can also describe moral excellence, which is kind of how we use it when we talk about a person. If you say this person is good, it's describing them as being morally excellent. Uh, Psalm 27, Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. His adversaries aren't morally excellent. They're all those red adjectives that we looked at earlier. But here he says, I am hoping to see the moral excellence of God, that God would deal rightly with me, that God would be good to me. All right? So, all of those things kind of describe this idea of God being good. You can take all of those ideas, prosperity, beauty, moral excellence, and you can apply all of those to God. God's goodness is called a communicable attribute. It's communicable in the sense that, in some degree, it is found in you and me. When we say communicable attribute, we're talking about attributes that God communicates or he gives to his creatures. Now, are we good in the same way that God is good? No. God is infinitely good. God's goodness is perfect. It is without limitation. We're good in a finite way, in a limited way. We have some goodness in us. And it's moral. That is to say, it's an evaluation of our moral condition. You can also say it's a, or, or it'll describe our lack of goodness as well. Uh, Wayne Grudem says the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of what is good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Wayne Grudem, by the way, provides some great definitions in his systematic theology for the attributes of God. And I want to use this definition and just kind of build off the definition. And we'll get a better under, under wow 
we'll get a better understanding of what we mean when we say God is good. What are we actually talking about? And I want to start with this. God is the final standard of what is good. That's where I want to begin. He is the standard of what is good. Um, whenever we describe something as being good, we're just going to talk from human, a human perspective. Whenever I describe something as being good, if I say this food is good or this book is good, it's always a relative description. That is to say, I'm always comparing it to something else. I'm always comparing it to another person, another book, another meal that I had. If I say I am a good person, it's a relative statement. You know what most people mean when they say I am a good person? I'm good relative to the guy over there. I'm not as evil as that guy. It's a relative statement. They don't mean that they are perfect, that they are the standard of what is good. They just mean I am good if you compare me to another person. Okay, you can also do this with food. Uh, someone comes over, I serve them a meal, and they say that dinner was very good. That is to say that the meal was subjectively pleasing to my taste buds. But even that is a relative statement because I can define it as being good because, well, I've had other meals that were not so pleasing to my taste buds. These are relative statements. Um, when we say that God is the final standard, whether, excuse me, describing something as good is always relative, whether it's I'm a good person or dinner was very good, these are both statements that are relative to my personal experience. I use my experience to determine what is and is not good. If we take the first one, I am a good person. We've already said that it's talking about I'm good compared to the guy next to me. But what if the guy you point to is this guy? You haven't actually described goodness, have you? Because if you said, Frank, you're a good person compared to him. Is that a compliment? <laughs> you haven't actually said something good about me. You haven't described me as being actually good. You just said, I'm just a little bit less evil than him. Or, if I say, well, I think I'm... I'm a decent singer, which I'm not. But let's say I thought, well, I'm a good singer. You know, compared to nails on a chalkboard. That might be honest, though. It's a relative statement. And if someone were to say that to you, that's not a compliment. They're not describing you as being a good singer. They're just saying you're more pleasing to the ears than nails on a chalkboard. If you want to determine what is good, you need to start with something that's better. You can't make the comparison going down. You have to make the comparison going up. If I want to know how good of a singer I am, if I want to know if I'm a decent singer, I need to compare myself to someone who can actually sing, who actually knows what they're doing. You know, like Bob Coughlin. Guy can sing. If you don't know who that is, that's from Sovereign Grace. Then I have some comparison of how good of a singer I am. 
if I compare my singing to nails on a chalkboard, that's really not helping me figure out how good I am, right? Now, when we get to Scripture, and Scripture talks about man, does Scripture say that man is good? No. Scripture says the exact opposite. Mark 10, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Man in Scripture is not good. Nor are our works, our efforts. What we do is not described as being good. Romans 3, verse 12, There is none who does good. That's a description of what you do, of your your works. But while these statements are absolutely true, they're still relative. They're still made in comparison to something else. And if you want to see that, just go and talk to someone in the world who's not a believer and tell them what Romans 3 says. You are not good. Your works are not good. What's their answer? I heard someone. I just didn't hear what you said. What's your answer? What's their answer? I am good. What I do is good. Going over and helping the grandma cross the road, that's good. Feeding the poor, that's good. That's good relative to other things in the world, isn't it? But when Scripture says you are not good, it's not comparing you to other people in the world. It's not comparing you to the deeds of other creatures. When Scripture says we are not good, Scriptures compare us to someone else. You and your works are not good when you're compared to God. God is the standard of what is good. We don't match His goodness. We don't match His perfection. And in comparison to Him, we are not good. The Bible says that God, and God alone, is good. Uh, Psalm 100. For the Lord is good. Psalm 106, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. God is the standard of what is good. And when we speak of man, good is always relative. It's always in comparison to something else. Whether you're comparing yourself to another person or you're comparing yourself to God, it's always relative. When we talk about God being good, it's an absolute. God is, by His nature, the very standard of what it means to be good. And you know that because when you compare everything in the world to God, nothing is good. There is nothing that supersedes His goodness. He is the ultimate standard of what is good. He is the definition of what it means to be good. And if you want to know how good someone is, just compare them to God and you'll find out where, where they stand. Everyone following me so far? Okay. Let's go back to our definition. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of what it, of good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. We'll, we'll do the, and that, and that all that God is, is worthy of approval. His entire nature, his entire being, is worthy of approval. All right, let's understand this real quick here. When we define something as good, 
if I say this is a really good book or this is a really good song, what I'm saying is this is a book or a song that I approve of, that I find worthy of my praise. And if I say this is a really good book, it also means I think it should be worthy of your praise as well. When I tell you this is a good book, we have it in the bookstore, what am I saying? You should get the book. It's good. It's worthy of praise. But here's the problem. When compared to God, nothing is good. I'll call a book good, or I'll say that's a good person. But if I actually compare those things to God and what he does, are they good? No. So can we approve of anything as being good on our own without God? If everything that I look at, I look at relative to everything else, and nothing in this world is perfect, nothing in this world is truly good when compared to God, then can I know what goodness is without God? If God is the standard of good, and if we cannot determine what is good without God, then being good simply means that you are approved of by God. Whatever God approves of is good. And if God doesn't approve of it, it's not good. For an atheist to say, well, um, you know, gay marriage is good. No, it's not. God says it's not good. What is good is determined by God, and God determines it based upon his own nature. He compares whatever it is to himself. And he judges its goodness based on that comparison. Wayne Grudem, that is to say, there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character. And his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. If you want to understand what goodness is, you just have to look at God. He's the standard of it. And what he says and what he approves of is good. And so if God says this is good, it's good. If he says it's not good, it's not good. Let's go back to our definition. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. We just talked about God is the standard. His nature is the standard. And whatever matches his nature, he approves of. And that is what is good. And now it says, because God is good, everything he does is good. Everything he does is worthy of praise. God is good. Therefore, all that God does is good. Therefore, if what is good is what God approves of, everything God does must be worthy of approval. It must be worthy of our praise. We must be able to say that is good. If you apply this to your life and the trials of your life, it really makes a difference. Because from your perspective, when you compare bad things that happen in your life, you'll say, well, this is not good. And certainly in the moment, it doesn't feel good. But if you understand that God is the ultimate standard of what is good, 
then everything that he does in your life must be good. It must be worthy of praise, which is why Paul in 1 Thessalonians said, you should be able to give thanks at all times. Always giving thanks. This is evidence in Scripture that his works are always good. Genesis 1, God saw that he had made all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God made the world, he made the universe, and he looked at it, and he compared it to his own nature, and he said, this is good. Psalm 119, you are good, and do good. Teach me your statutes. What's this say about Scripture? It's good. It's worthy of praise. It's worthy of commendation. It's been compared to God's nature, and God has said, I approve of Scripture. And therefore, if God approves of it, we should approve of it, right? All of God's dealings with His creation are good. Everything God does in the universe can be described as being good. Louis Burkhoff said the perfection of God, which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all of his creatures. Because God is good, because God is the standard of what it means to be good, and because all that he does is good, that goodness is reflected to his creation. And it's reflected to his creation in his provision and his care for them. His care for you and me. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Everything you have, everything you need has been given to you by God. He provides for every living creature. The little birds outside that you're chirping this morning, all of them are fed by God. The little critters in the field that you never see, all of them are cared for and provided for by God. James 1, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. If it's good, it's a gift from God. It comes from Him. Now that is not to say that God manifests His goodness to all of His creatures equally. Not all of his creatures receive the same level or receive the same benefit of God's goodness. Um, Louis Burkhoff provides a great explanation of this. It's a little long, but it's workable. It naturally, speaking of God's goodness, varies in degree according to the capacity of objects to receive it. And while it is not restricted to believers, they only manifest a proper appreciation of its blessings, desire to use them in the service of their God, and thus enjoy them in a richer and fuller measure. God demonstrates his goodness to all creatures in his provision. He provided them a beautiful world to live in. He's provided them air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink. The sun rises and sets upon them. It rains. That is a provision of God's goodness. But God's goodness is not manifested to all creatures equally. He manifests that goodness especially toward believers. Why would he manifest it especially towards believers rather than unbelievers? 
There you go. It brings his brings him glory. Like he said in the definition, they'll appreciate it. They'll desire to use those gifts in a way that is pleasing to him, to serve him. And so they get to enjoy the goodness of God in a richer and fuller means. Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That should encourage some prayer time. Take that verse into your prayer time. No good thing he will withhold from the upright. And then go into scriptures which are good and find some good things in there and start asking for them. Romans 8, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Now people will read that and say, well, yeah, but I wanted a really nice house and that would have been a good thing. Well, that's good compared to your standards. But what is the definition of good? What is the standard of good? It's God's nature, right? Which is infinitely better than my standard of good. God will give good things that he thinks are good. Here it's talking about eternal good. He's going to do what is good for you eternally. And he makes all things work together. I've seen this done in counseling where someone will be in there and they're, they're suffering through a difficult time. And you take them to this verse and you point them and you have them read the verse and you say, whoa, so that means some things work out for your good, right? And the same person who just a moment before was telling you how horrible their life is and how God's not being fair to them is now defending what the text says. No, no, it says all. It says all. I know it says all. All things work together for your good. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he also not uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And those things would be good things. Your eternal salvation, everything that's needed. And you manifest this, this goodness in your life. Matthew 7, 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. You're a sinner. You're not perfect as God is perfect, but yet you still find ways to give good things to your children. And then he kind of turns it around on you and says, and if that's true of you, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? And again, we go back to your prayer life. If God is good and all that he gives is good and he does not withhold good from those that love him, then we should all be asking for a lot more of that goodness. That should invigorate your prayer life. Any questions on goodness? Comments? Okay. Let's move on to love. Um, before I start this, you could probably spend the rest of your life trying to explain the love of God. I've got 30 minutes. <laughs> so 30 minutes is enough for a pizza, but it's not enough to explain the love of God. So this is not going to be all-encompassing, and there's probably going to be a lot that you wish I would say or talk about, and I'm not going to get to it. But I hope this will give you a good start, and you can go home and study some more on the love of God. 
Um, I'm going to start with some basic definitions here. Wayne Grudem, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. The giving of self means that he gives for the benefit and for the blessing of another. He gives himself for their benefit and for their blessing. That could be material blessing, that could be physical provision, that could be eternal provision, or that could just be for them to receive honor and praise. Uh, Stuart Scott provides a really good definition. Love is a selfless and enduring commitment of the will to care about and benefit another person by righteous, truthful, and compassionate thoughts, words, and actions. Love is all-encompassing. It involves every ounce and every fiber of your being. Not just a part of you loves. Godly love encompasses every piece of you. Love is also a communicable attribute. The reason that you are able to experience love, the reason that you are able to give love, is because God has provided that to you and has made that possible. You were made in God's image, and God has communicated this attribute of his to you. And your love is going to be similar to God's love. The only difference is his love is perfect and infinite, and ours isn't. But what we see in God's love, you'll also see in human love. All right, so what's the difference between love and goodness? Is there actually a distinction? I'm sorry? Yeah, you can say it's a subset. Um, God's love is goodness displayed toward rational creatures. Um, we'll talk about this later, but we talk about we love our pets. Technically, you're good to your pet. You don't love your pet. God's goodness, God gives in his goodness to all creatures, rational or not. He provides for the birds, he provides for you. But his goodness toward rational creatures, so his goodness, let's say, to human beings, is a higher value or a higher virtue, you might say. It's still connected with goodness, but it goes further because we're talking about love. Um, Louis Burkhoff again, when the goodness of God is exercised towards his rational creatures, it assumes the higher character of love. And this love may be distinguished according to the objects on which it terminates. That is to say, God does not love everyone equally. His love is not manifested equally to every person in the world. And again, let's think about it from just our perspective. The love that we demonstrate to others is not equal. Okay, by show of hands, how many of you have pets? Okay, how many of you love your pets? Good. You have, someone said no. <laughs> Must have cats. Um, <laughs> shots fired. <laughs> okay, so we, we assume you love your pets. All right, how many of you have kids? Okay, how many of you love your kids? Good. Most days, good. Okay, so you love your kids. Now here's the question. 
Do you love your pets just the same way you love your kids? Of course not. That would be silly. And if you if you doubt that for a second, just imagine your little one-year-old and your dog are both sitting in the middle of the road. And you can only save one before the truck hits it. Which one are you going to grab? You're going to grab the kid. You don't love them equally. And you say, well, yeah, but Frank, you just said you don't love pets. You're good to pets. So this doesn't work. Okay, fine. You love your family, right? Is your love to your family demonstrated equally all the way across the board? Do you love your children the same way you love your cousins, the same way you love your aunts and uncles, the same way you love your parents, the same way you love your in-laws? Is that all equal? Can you say you give all of them the same amount of love? I can go years without seeing some of my, in- some of my not my in-laws, some of my, um, I don't have in-laws. <laughs> what am I saying? Without seeing some of my extended family. Years. But if I were to go years without seeing my immediate family, that would be a real problem. How many of you have gone years without seeing a cousin? Yeah? How many of you have gone years without seeing your spouse? Different, right? (laughs) Yeah, if they're no longer your spouse, you would do that. Okay, so that's just your family. Do you love your neighbors the same way you love your family? You may be good to your neighbors, and you may show a certain level of love to them, but you do not show them the same kind of love that you would show to, let's say, your children. The object, the thing that the love is set upon, determines the nature and the manifestation of that love. And in the same way, God's love is not universal. It's not manifested equally to every rational creature. Not every person is going to receive the same amount of God's love. He does demonstrate his love to all people, though, in some way. Everyone has received some level of his love. I'll show you. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are called to love our enemies. Love those who hate you. Love those who do mean to you. Love those who call you names. Love those who persecute you. You are called to love your enemies. And you're called to love your enemies because God loves his enemies. Need I remind you that used to be you? Why should you love your enemies? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Provision to non-rational creatures is God's goodness. His care and provision for rational creatures is his love. And God demonstrates his love in some ways to unbelievers by giving them rain. By making the sun come up. By providing for their basic needs. It is a demonstration of God's love for those individuals. But here's the problem. God is perfectly good. God defines what is good. He measures everything according to his own nature. So how does a perfectly good God love sinful man? How does a perfectly good God love people who hate him? 
people who hate everything he loves. How is that possible? How is it possible for God to do that? I think Burkhoff provides a great explanation. I'm sorry for all the quotes, but, you know, they say someone said it better. He loves his rational creatures for his own sake, or to express it otherwise, he loves them, he loves in them himself, his virtues, his works, and his gifts. He does not even withdraw his love completely from the sinner in his present sinful state, though the father's, the latter's sin is an abomination to him once he recognizes, even in the sinner, his image bearer. That is to say, when God looks at a sinner, when God looks at man, and just assuming they're not a believer, it's not the sinful man that he loves. It's not something that the person does that he loves. When he looks at that person, he sees someone made in his own image. He sees characters and qualities of himself in that person. And that is what draws his love and his affection. Does that make sense? In James, you're said, with the same mouth, you bless and curse those who are made in the image of God. When you curse and you call someone else a name, you are assaulting with your mouth an image bearer of God, and that's considered an attack on God himself. Genesis 9, it says, do not kill another person. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. Physical assault, physically assaulting someone is an attack on God himself. And it is his image that he sees in sinful man that draws his affection. Uh, and he demonstrates his love to them through providing them food and rain. 1 John 3.1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know him, because it did not know him. God's love is most clearly and abundantly manifested in providing salvation. In calling a people, electing a people for himself. To say that God loves everyone equally is misleading. Because he doesn't. It lets people believe that they're okay right where they are. God's love is demonstrated to all men in the sense that he provides for all men, but it's manifested in certain people because God brings them into a saving relationship with himself. To understand this a little bit more, let's just go back to how we love. When you say, I love, and you give a name, I love my spouse, I love my parents, I love my children, whatever. What are you actually saying? Well, depending on who you talk to, some people mean, I have a really strong feeling toward you. This is a really dangerous understanding of love. With this definition, people assume that love is nothing more than a feeling. That Love has no real obligations attached to it. It requires nothing more than that you experience some kind of feeling. Young people get confused with this. They get to a certain age, they start noticing the opposite sex, and they start having all these really strong feelings, and they assume it's love. Because they define love as nothing more than a feeling. 
Or, we're not saying that love is, I only do good things for you. And the key word here is only. In that sense, the definition of love is to do good for someone else. And this is where husbands get themselves in trouble because they don't express love in other ways. And the wife will come and say, hey, you're not being very loving to me. And he points to something he did last week. Look what I did for you. Of course I love you. And they define love just as what they've done. It's just an action. Or they'll say, well, it has no feeling attached to it. That doesn't really work. Or I only want to receive good things from you. This is the needs-oriented person. The person who says, I love you to the extent that you provide to me what I need and what I want. And as long as you're willing to provide that to me, I'm willing to have a loving relationship with you. But the moment those needs stop being met, those desires stop being met, we're done. And I'm out. God's love is not some sappy emotional feeling. It, God is not... God does not fall in love. When we talk about falling in love, what we're talking about is some kind of passive experience where we're overwhelmed by some outside force and we just have to give in to it. God is not overcome or controlled by any emotion. He experiences emotions. It's called the doctrine of impassibility. He experiences some level of emotions, but those emotions do not control him. He's not compelled by them. Why do I have this twice? It's, it's important, that's why. Thank you. I knew that was the reason. Those who define their love by their emotions will turn away from a relationship just because that emotion passes. I've been counseling for a relatively short period of time, and already I've seen husbands who have left their wives because I no longer feel like I love her. And so therefore, we're going to dissolve the marriage because I don't have that feeling anymore. And that's not to say that God does not experience some level of emotion. He does. Charles Hodge, love of necessity involves feeling. And if there be no feeling in God, there can be no love. Let me stop for a second and just say this. We're talking about emotions and feelings. What's the difference? Emotions are God-given responses to the world around you based on your interpretation or understanding of those events. You look at what happens in the world, and you say that I can be sad by it. Or you can look at what happens, and you can say I can rejoice in that. Right? Feelings are your physical experience of the emotion. I feel sad. The emotion produces a physical response. That's the feeling. And what he's saying here is love by necessity produces feelings, emotions. If you were to go to your spouse and say, look, I love you, but I just have no feelings for you. Would that go over well? Love has to have feelings. Love has to have some emotion to it. Love is also not merely just doing something good for another person. I can be good to someone by giving them a meal. It doesn't mean I love them. 
That meal doesn't have to include any real sacrifice on my part. I don't even have to establish any kind of relationship with the person just to do good with, do good for them. You might say that just to be good has no obligations attached to it. I can be good to someone and I have no further obligation to, to them at all. But when we talk about God's love, that's not what we're talking about. Love goes beyond just doing something good for someone. Wayne Grudem, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. It's not just providing someone a meal. It's providing himself. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love is demonstrated and manifested by the sacrifice of himself. The giving of himself. He gives himself for the benefit and for the blessing of someone else. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest demonstration of God's love for mankind was his willingness to sacrifice himself for your benefit. Love implies some level of sacrifice, of giving of yourself to someone else. And just like God's love that always seeks for good, the giving of yourself is always for the good of the other person. We looked at this verse earlier, but a quick reminder, Romans 8.28. It's seeking after their good. Even if that means it costs him something. It costs Jesus quite a bit to love you. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's not just doing something good for someone in general. It's a willingness to give yourself for someone else's benefit. And it's not based on what you can give. We talked about people who, they're in the relationship only for what they can get. God didn't love you because you gave him something, or that you could provide him something. He provided it to you purely because he loved you. You might say his love is not a response. His love is something he initiates. It's proactive. 1 John 4 9, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he helped us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us. God loved us long before we did anything for him. It was proactive. It was purely for our benefit, not for his. 1 John 4, 16, we love because he first loved us. He always takes the initiative. His love comes first. And our love for him is merely a response to the love he's demonstrated for us. God's love is a willful choice made by God to give himself for you. And this same kind of love to work for the benefit of another is seen in the inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. John 17, Father, I desire that also, that they also, whom you have given me, 
Be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father loved the Son in eternity past. And from all of eternity, the Father loved the Son and sought his joy and his glory. It's reciprocal. Same love that was reciprocated from the Son to the Father, while not mentioned, is also given to the Spirit. And the Son gives that love back. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Father loves the Son. He sought for the Son's glory. And the Son reciprocates that love back to the Father in humble submission and obedience in the Incarnation. God's love is demonstrated to you. And for you, this, the result should be the same. It should be reciprocated and returned back in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If this love is genuine, you will be striving to obey and to be obedient. 1 John 5, for this is the love of God. This is what it means to love God, that we keep his commandments. True love that's reciprocated back to God always produces a life of obedience. Jesus actually said that love was the summation of the entire law. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Take the first few laws of the Ten Commandments. That's loving God. Take the last ones. That's loving others. All right. Last little thing here. I want to get practical for just a moment. We were talking about people who love, and they're in a relationship, and they can sing that old song. I've lost that loving feeling. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a relationship with another person or your relationship with God. How many of you have ever been there? I don't feel like I love God. I don't have any feelings or affection for him right now. Or if you're in a relationship with a spouse and you have that time where you don't feel like you love that person, what do you do? Well, first... Your feelings do not define truth. You can't operate based on how you feel. Love isn't just a feeling. And just because you don't feel like it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you don't feel like God loves you doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. When you know Scripture said the exact opposite. Just because you don't feel like, you're, like you love your spouse doesn't mean that you don't actually love your spouse. Second, you also need to realize that feelings are largely determined by behavior. Biblical behavior, biblical responses to the world produces good feelings. Unbiblical responses produces really bad feelings. But if you want that love, that feeling of love to return, you've likely lost it because you've stopped behaving in a loving way. You've stopped doing the things that are involved in loving someone. 
and you've begun to relax on the idea that I have this feeling towards the person, and that just made you sit there like a lump on a log and do nothing. So begin to act loving. Begin to demonstrate your love to that person. Whether we're talking about God, get back in the Word, get back in prayer, get back to focusing on obedience and righteousness. And if you're talking about your spouse, well, start doing the things that you did when you were dating them and pursuing them. Start acting like you love, and that feeling will come back. Does that make sense? Any questions, comments, concerns? She was saying she was reading The Peacemaker, and his recommendation there was write down 30 things that you love about that person. So 30 things that you love about God, 30 things that you love about your spouse, and focus on those things. It's really good practical advice. Anyone else? Comments, questions? All right. So we've looked at the goodness of God. We've looked at the love of God. I think next week we're going to talk about grace and mercy. I could be wrong on that, but I think that's where we're going next week. So, all right. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that um, you are good, that you are the standard of what it means to be good, that everything that you have done in this world, in our lives, everything that you are doing is good. It is worthy of our praise. It is worthy of our appreciation and thanks. And we are especially thankful for the love that you've demonstrated to us in Christ, the love that you demonstrate to us in bringing us to yourself and reconciling us to yourself. And we just ask that you would help us to respond back to you in love and obedience and worship and praise. And that uh, you would be with us this morning as we seek to do that. And that our praise and our worship would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.